0: This is the Stuck Mike Abcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly.
1: Episode 179, a podcasting first, reporting from the air and on the ground from a NASA rocket launch. Coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Abcast. Now here are your
0: co-hosts, Victoria Neuville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ
1: Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, And Carl Valeri. Well, folks, welcome to a special edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. This is what we feel is a podcasting first. We're actually reporting live, well, recorded, I should say, from the air and on the ground from a NASA rocket launch. But I'll get to that in a second. Let's do the (laughs) pre-flight. Before we get started, a real note from our sponsor. Our sponsor is aerospace scholarships.com. Aerospace scholarships.com has scholarships for everybody. And no matter what level you're at in the flying world, you can get your private. If you're going to college, you're a young person, you're older, no matter what, we have scholarships for everybody. We have over 50 million scholarships in that God Aerospace scholarships.com. And it's only $10 for one year access to that guy first. For only $10 you can you can actually get yourself a paid for scholarship for all your ratings. So check it out, aerospace-scholarships.com. Now, entering cruise flight. And joining me today is Victoria Newville. Victoria, welcome back what, to what? the show. Woo-hoo. How you been? Thank
2: you. I've been great. I don't think we've uh, chatted. I've chatted with you guys since Sun and Fun. I so. know.
1: So this is awesome. And having huh?
2: withdrawal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's great to have you on. It's actually going to be the two of us because we have a lot of interviews to get to. And uh, but we'll talk about that in a second. I think you also had an announcement. It has to do, I think, with scholarships. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, also scholarship-related. My company tries to give back as much as we can each year, and um, we do that through the Get Into the Air Aviation Scholarship. So the deadline's in June, and it'll be announced at Oshkosh, the winner. So uh, make sure you get onto that just to go to air-pros.com, and there's a slider on the page. You'll have a link there. And then also, it's under res- the Resources tab, so you can download the application packet. It's for five hundred dollars, but there's no limits to who can apply. If you're 80, if you're 12, you know, and you can use it for anything aviation-related.
1: That's really cool. I mean, you can just do like an IPC, say, is that what? Can it yeah, be for? it's
2: great. If you if you're not current and just want to get your flight review and get refreshed, if you want to put it towards. Um, perhaps uh, a knowledge test, you know, those can be expensive. You can put it towards that or a check ride.
1: Awesome. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people think that scholarships are just for, for young people, and I know there's a lot of them, most of them are for those people, but it's really for anybody, and I think this is great that you folks do this, and that's air-pros.com, and just click on the scholarships, and I think it's under resources, I think, under scholarships, but uh, we'll have a link to it. And it's also going to be in the scholarships guide. I know it was at one point. Somehow it got taken out, I think, and we're going to have it back in there within <laughs> the next week or two. We update it anyway, so uh, the new updated, I should say, scholarship will be out there. That's a more positive way to say that. <laughs> well, it's that's, a
2: good resource, it, as though I can understand how there's so many scholarships, I can understand how one might mm, get lost.
1: Yes, it, it's you. easy to get lost. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but uh, anyway, one of the things that we we did, we're doing something different with this show. And, you know, we talk about aviation, learning to fly, them to fly, loving to fly. And part of flying is not just in, you know, here in the atmosphere, but it's outside the atmosphere and it's space. Uh, this will be one of the first episodes we're really do, uh, strictly related to space, Uh, and I really want to hear your feedback, Uh, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about uh, this episode, if you want to hear more from NASA. We all have some interconnection with NASA, and uh, if you want us to bring more of these, because it is so aviation-related, and it's very, it's fascinating topics, uh, we will bring you more from the NASA front, and also the fact that we all live uh, not as uh, far as we think from a launch pad, and we're... I'm going to actually, I discovered something new, and, and uh, Victoria's going to tell us a little bit about that. With that said, Victoria, you had a very unique experience, and uh, it, it was just phenomenal what happened. And what is it that we, we just said from the air and from the ground from a NASA rocket launch? So tell us a little bit of the backstory as to how did you get to actually watch this NASA rocket, rocket launch?
2: So apparently there's something called NASA Socials, and it's where they get a bunch of you know, big uh, space geeks together um, from a wide variety of background and experiences. And we all come um, and have this unique experience where you get to watch a rocket launch and get some behind-the-scenes tours. So once upon a time, a friend put this link on my page to apply to the launch. And I thought I was just applying to get like, close media passes to a launch, maybe hear a briefing or two, like show up and leave. No, it was a whole weekend-long event. Uh, we toured a sounding rocket facility, um, a space balloon facility, um, met Astronaut K. Hire, and the people that were there were from all walks of life, and I am a social person, so this was perfect for me, so it was more than just me showing up to a rocket launch and leaving, and I came back exhausted, but so buzzed. It's kind of like after a week of Oshkosh or Sun and Fun, you know, you see all your friends, you share all this passion, and then you, like, come back, and you're just, like, dead. Um, That was me.
1: (laughs) You know, that sounds like a lot of fun, and you can learn so much at these socials, and just, uh, it's like a big, it, it seemed like to me, I was following you on Facebook, it seemed like a one big party. Uh, it was. <laughs>
2: but like with um, education, I, I learned so much. I was one of the few people um, with an aviation background. There was one student pilot there, and she was also studying to become an ANP. But everyone else really like did their research, and they they knew what re- was going up in this rocket. It was um, a, a resupply mission to the International Space Station. So Orbital atk nine um, was the mission. And uh, they had all kinds of food, supplies, um, experiments going up to the space station. And a lot of these people had um, scientific backgrounds or um, taught things about space. And, uh, you know, I hung out all day with these people that have worked on the International Space Station and have worked with all the astronauts. So um, it was really humbling, too. And I just absorbed everything that i could while i was there
1: and these social events by the way remember I, I alluded to the fact that you can get involved no matter where you are i mean they have them in many different centers out in california in cleveland ohio uh maryland of course uh, Cal- uh pasadena houston texas johnson space center uh mm-hmm. hampton roads and alabama even huntsville and uh just all over and of course the one that you went to was at Wallops Flight Facility in, in Wallops Island in Virginia. So that isn't that far from you, was it?
2: No, it's about oh, well on the way there because of the <laughs> rain. <laughs> it was a five-hour drive, but the way back was like three and a half hours. So um, definitely very close, easier than Florida. Um, people came all the way from L.A. so And really? some people drove from, I think we had a gal drive from Tennessee, wow. another from Missouri. So... Um, People were dedicated and they also have these things called NASA ambassadors. There's actually people that are dubbed as ambassadors for NASA and like can host, you know, space themed events around the country. So it doesn't always have to be at, you know, for example, like a launch facility like this one was.
1: So this is more like people into space but uh, there were, like you said, yourself and maybe one other person in the aviation world and uh, so that's that's cool to see that. I mean, obviously they're very interconnected and, and NASA obviously is National Aeronautics and Space Administration uh, and they've done so much to promote aviation in space. It's just phenomenal over the past decades and uh, reaching, it, it's people dreaming and doing. It's phenomenal just to talk to some of these people. You actually get up close and personal with these folks and it's it's neat to kind of stretch the boundaries that's kind of what we're doing here on this show and uh just realizing that you know other people have have passions for flight and uh some of them have to do with space space flight and uh, you were surrounded by those folks what was you know I'm curious is did you feel a little bit nervous like because of the fact that it really was more space in, than aviation
2: I was very nervous. First of all, I didn't know anyone. I knew one person there, actually, I lied. I knew one person, but he was with the media. So um, they were. we were social media, and then there was a section for media. And, um, you know, when I just heard these backgrounds and the introductions, about, I was like, how smart are all these people? <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm a very humble person, so I was just like, I'm a pilot. I'm, I'm on a podcast, you know. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, you know, I, I taught... You know, I kind of bestowed my wisdom upon the student pilot that was there. And I shared stuff with some people while they taught me other things. And so, you know, even though um, I didn't as mu- know as much about the space stuff, everyone there was so excited. They were happy to teach me and they weren't like, oh, you lowly ground pilot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they were very helpful
1: yeah it is humbling to meet all these astronauts and uh, having you know been around a lot of them and worked with them down in Houston it's uh, there are some really smart people out there uh, mm-hmm. that get selected for this and it's an incredible process and uh, just it, it's so exciting to see something like this and to see this country put forth uh, all these missions towards space and and Mars etc uh, what's interesting about this mission is the fact that when they were resupplying it and by the way there's tons of YouTube videos out there, and we have some links at the bottom of the podcast. As a matter of fact, you might want to check out the show notes on this one, 179, because I have links to everything she talked about. She talked about the social, I'll uh, have links to that, how you can get involved with some of this, but also there's a link to all the the different views that NASA has on this, this launch, and it goes into the docking and all that. I spent like an hour just watching this. Like, wow, this is totally cool. Uh, so if you're into that, you really need to check it out. But but what's really interesting about this mission is they have all these It's an, it, experiments, right? In DNA and, and microgravity and, and how it affects DNA and that type of thing. But one thing that I thought was like totally cool, and I know that you can relate to this. Is the fact that they're going up there and they're testing a sextant navigation, a sextant physical sextant navigation for emergency navigation on missions uh, to see if they can use that to travel through space. And I know Victoria, you have it's kind of a, a you have a special connection to that with the sextant navigation and seeing it go back into space again.
2: Yeah, I definitely do. Um, So basically, for those that don't know, a sextant was used in the nautical days, um, judging the angle between some stars, and you do some math, and you get to figure out where you are in comparison to those stars. And during my introductions uh, at the NASA social, we're supposed to, you know, say our name and say a fun fact about ourselves, what we do and all that stuff. So my fun fact was, that my grandfather actually designed the sextant that the Apollo astronauts used to navigate themselves to the moon. Think, back then we didn't have GPS. There's no GPS up there that can get us to the moon or to Mars or wherever. You need some other way to navigate. And uh, that's what the Apollo uh, astronauts used. And that's what my grandfather designed. And it looks a lot different than the one going up in the uh, to the space station. However, so I said this as my fun fact, I shared that my grandpa did this and my grandpa's why I love space. And part of the reason why I became a pilot and no more than five minutes do I sit down, you know, after this introduction and this woman like charges at me, and I was like, oh, my God, why, why is she <laughs> what did to I do? me? Like, did I get an emergency <laughs> phone call? Like, am I getting kicked out? Was I not supposed to be here? <laughs> you know, um, and she's like, did you know there is a sextant going up in the lunch? And I was like, what? I had no idea. And so I got to, you know, talk with um, the people that were uh, responsible for educating others about all the different science um stuff going up into the space station and learn all about that so it really felt meant to be that here was this launch that i first had no idea about never heard of nasa socials and show up and they have kind of like a piece of my history going up into space and so i was just i was just blown away i was like ah this is meant to be
1: (laughs) (laughs) what an incredible connection that is and it really was an amazing event and victoria if you could just kind of tell us before i know we have a couple interviews that you did but but that whole experience i know it was so cool walking around with all these people and learning so much but but how would the the launch itself
2: Oh, my goodness. Uh, So I saw the last two shuttle launches, which, you know, that type of stuff kind of brings you to tears, especially the last one, because I knew it was the last. I was on the causeway, which is just a few miles away. And it's just remarkable, the raw power. I have never been to a night launch. And I had crawled out of bed at 1 a.m. to drive to the meeting spot to hop on a bus at 2 a.m. for a police (laughs) escort to our launch site. So they create this whole ring where people are not allowed to go just in case something happens. And I sat there in the dark, you know, until just before 5 a.m. when it went off. And it became daylight, the second those engines ignited the whole sky, you know, I took a cell phone video and I was worried it was going to sh- be all grainy and gross. Nope. You can see it clear as day. Cause it is clear as day once that thing launches. And we were so close. we were 1.8 miles away. I believe you could feel it. It like reverberated in your body. And, uh, which t- I just sat there in awe and I wanted to make sure I enjoyed the experience. So I actually got lucky that my cell phone picked it up because I wasn't watching my screen. I just kind of held it so I can enjoy the experience with my eyes and kind of just move the screen as it went up without even looking at the camera. So I'm lucky my, my cell phone video turned out pretty well.
1: Yeah, it did a great job on it. And uh, I'm sure you're sitting there in amazement and awe. Now, when this went up, did you actually, I know it went through some clouds, but how, how long were you able to see the, the launch and did you see the separation from the stage?
2: Um, it was so bright. That we saw it even through the clouds, and I think that almost made it cooler because it lit up the clouds. And we had mission control fed through some loudspeakers on the bleachers that I was at. So I got to hear when it hit 20,000 feet, and I could still hear, see it. It was just a little dot um, when it hit uh, like 100,000 feet. And then when they did do like the separation, or I think it was like this, the booster,
3: mm-hmm.
2: we got to see a, a flash again just up there in the sky. Uh, so it was great. And then you just hear the rumbling. The, you know, the sound is what gets everyone excited about aviation and space, I think. You know, you go to an air show and you hear those big engines rumbling or F-16 fly by real fast. I think the sound gets you more excited sometimes <laughs> than seeing it. And I think that's what the rocket launch was like for me.
1: Yeah, it got me excited, too. and And to add to that launch, amazingly enough, and this was phenomenal how this worked out. I was actually over the Atlantic Ocean at 36,000 feet, just to the south and a little bit to the west of Bermuda while this was going off. And I, as I'm flying, I told the captain, I said, listen, let's dim the lights a little bit and look outside because I don't want to miss this. And I'm watching, and I see this little satellite, and uh, we thought that might be the launch, and we're like kind of embarrassed because it wasn't. And then maybe a few minutes later, we're like, oh my god there it is and you could see this little white light turn into this bright white light with this huge plume from the exhaust from that large engine going through the sky and what was interesting is remember I'm over the ocean so there's no VHF communication it's all you know HF communication and uh, VHF we talk air to air with other airplanes and remember this is like 4 in the morning so there's not many airplanes out there over the Atlantic but we all monitor one, two three four five one two three point four five and also one twenty one point five and also some suddenly someone comes up on the frequency and says, "Hey, is anybody on frequency on lima four fifty five and that, that's an airway that's over the ocean and I'm like, yeah. Why? What's going on? He says, "Well, do you see that in the air?" It's kind of like he's hesitant, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's the launch uh, for the resupply for the International Space Station." He goes, "Oh my God, thank God! I thought the the talks broke down with Korea." I was like, everybody's like <laughs> laughing. I was like, "Oh no, no, no! It's just a this, but anyway, the launch was phenomenal." I'm sitting there watching this, and I, and the captain's like, looking at him like, "Oh my gosh!" I said. No kidding. There's somebody on the ground that's actually recording this, and we're going to report about this later. And here we are, for. The, and I think this is probably a podcast first. We're actually reporting from the air and on the ground, uh, watching this go through the sky. And what was the most amazing thing you talked about when you saw the separation? The separation of that stage was right out our right window. And it was amazing, this plume, but it stopped. Like, the there was this fire, but the fire stopped and then it started up again. And I, I watched some video later and realized that that was actually a coasting phase. And then it starts up again with the next stage. The thing that really got me and scared the heck out of us was when that stage comes back into the atmosphere, when they say it burns up, it really burns up. We're watching this, and all of a sudden this huge orange fireball just right outside our right window. We felt like we could touch it. Obviously, it was hundreds of miles away, but it really, it was just we were awestruck when we first saw it and then both of us looked at each other and said boy i hope there's nothing else falling out of the sky (laughs) and i hope it doesn't hit us and obviously there isn't but you start getting that sense like oh my gosh what else is up there that might fall on us uh but just a a phenomenal sight and then it just kind of coasted away and away and away and away and uh finally was gone and we're we're just i as the sun and this is right as the sun is starting to come over the horizon and you know up that high you can actually see it come over the horizon and you can see the smoke trail from when it re-entered the atmosphere and just absolutely beautiful the ribbons of uh and it made this little cloud formation just just phenomenal so this was really cool victoria that you and i got to actually see this launch from two very different perspectives
2: I know I, I I think it has to we can't say for sure it's a first but I think I think it's a
1: I yeah, we'll we'll say it probably is a cool. first. Yeah, we're just that cool. And, and we we planned this. We didn't plan it, but we did know it was going to happen and I, it was just just phenomenal the the luck uh, that may have it. Um but uh but it was for me it was it was a very personal experience because uh what I was doing I was flying from San Juan, Puerto Rico up to Newark, New Jersey and I was going actually going to take my dad for lunch. That's one of the things we do on on overnights in Newark because that's where my family is. Uh but unfortunately When I landed, and about the time that the rocket was actually flying overhead is uh, the time that uh, my dad passed away. And uh, I found that out right after I got on the ground. And uh, so my week has been a very difficult and struggling week. But at least I can maybe say that my dad went out with a bang. And that was this kind of send off was sending this rocket over the ocean to for me to watch. And uh, so that was absolutely incredible. So as a matter of fact, I did a little tribute to my dad. And I can put that at the bottom just, uh, you know, a little bit of personal stuff. uh, And, uh, you know, I can attribute a Lot of my success in life to uh, to my father to to what he did and uh, the fact that i was uh, interestingly enough at at the wake uh, one of the gentlemen that was there he actually worked on the rockets that um move he was a scientist that worked on designing the rockets that actually maneuvered uh the um, the module, the LEM, uh, and lunar module, excursion module. So, uh, it was, it was interesting to talk to him actually at the, the wake there and, and, uh, the amazing people that he was able to touch and, uh, but anyway, that's, uh, so you can watch that video. A lot of uh, people don't realize my dad was an immigrant. He came to this country and kind of led the, lived the American dream, you know, learn, learn the language and went on and, and uh, became a, a physician even, uh, and just you know taught me to to enjoy life and and follow your passion, which this is. Aviation is my passion, and uh, and this is just. Just an amazing thing to bring to people. So anyway, not to bring things down too much, but uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience to see that launch, and it was a fitting end to my, my father's long and productive life. So uh, anyway, and I appreciate, by the way, everything all the uh, things that people have said and the condolences that have been forwarded to me. Now, with all that said, let's get on to the interviews. Uh, Victoria? You have a couple of interviews here. So why don't you introduce them before we actually roll those interviews? There's two people I think you interview. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, there's two people. I mean, I really wanted to interview astronaut Kay Hire, but I didn't want to take up too much of her time because she had a huge line of people. But I do have to say she gave me some advice. So I felt very special when we got to talk gal to gal about flying and aviation, and she gave me some tips. so um yeah, we were, we were so busy, and I will forewarn you that there is um, a little bit of background noise in these interviews because uh, it's, it was hard to find free space, and we, our days were so jam-packed with activities, and it was hard to find an area that was quiet without so many people around. So I do apologize for that. Um, the first interview, though, uh, was, was a lovely lady, and she's a great storyteller, uh, Jean Wright. And she currently works, uh, volunteers at the Kennedy Space Center, but she is what's called aerospace composite tech soft goods for all the shuttle missions. And I was like, what on earth is that? She is a seamstress and little did I know that NASA hired seamstresses, um, For various type of materials and things that need to be sewn on board. And it's not just, you know, blankets for astronauts. Some very important, very um, uh, important pieces of the shuttle are actually seamed together by these seamstresses. And there were some some fun facts I learned about different materials and uh, composites that they use. So that's Jean Wright. And the second interview is with my buddy Keelan. I hung out with him uh, quite a bit. Keelan Hamilton, he was the science ambassador for NASA Social and actually gave us a presentation um, for all the science uh, experiments and items that were going up into the space station. So he's the one who got to do the talk on the sextant, and we'll talk about that a little bit in the interview as well. He works for Berrios Tech and is kind of out and about to teach everyone about all that's involved with the space station and uh going up in it so he's he's a great um well he was the science ambassador for our event that's what you can kind of call his job as well as to bring to the public um exactly all the great things the space station is doing
1: well, cool. Let's uh, tell you what, let's roll those interviews, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about them afterwards. So, so let's go ahead, Mr. Producer, go ahead and uh, roll the interviews.
3: We're here at the Wallops Flight Center right now, and I'm here with Gene Wright from the Kennedy Space Center. Welcome, Gene. Welcome. So you, I can tell by looking at you right now, I'm going to just describe this lovely lady in front of me. She has a pin that says space hipsters and all her IDs from uh, previous missions and pins from also uh,
4: many other missions. So you are a space geek. Yes, I am. <laughs> but, but I also did something very fascinating. I don't know if you've been told, but I was a seamstress on the space shuttle. And when I tell people how much hand sewing we did on them, they're, they're absolutely, totally surprised that something is basic as hand sewing could be used on something so technological as shuttle was.
3: You kind of have to start somewhere. I was telling uh, people earlier, my grandpa worked um, for the Apollo missions and I was shocked when I realized they did not have calculators back then. So it makes sense that you would kind of need a seamstress to do this type of stuff. Um, Can you tell me where your love of space started and how you got into this industry?
4: Oh, see, I love talking about this. I have a twin sister named Joan, and we've been interested in the space program, I would say probably since the time we were like 10. I'm in my early 60s now. Um, but we used to take crayons and draw patch designs, mission patches, and send them to Houston. And, of course, most of the time astronauts themselves designed it or had someone design it. But we would get a lot of thanks with no thanks letters, but they would send us autographed pictures and, and, and anything, pictures of the flight, so it's been an interest of what my sister and I, from the time we were little girls, uh, never always hoping, but never really honestly thinking I had a chance. But um, but in my I mean, later in my years, I, I got my wish come true, and I started working out there.
3: Amazing. So um, when did you start working out there, and what
4: was your position? I started in there just the end of 2004, right after we lost. It was about a year after we lost um, uh, Columbia kind of a late start. In fact, I have the distinction of being the last seamstress they hired in the whole space program to work on shuttle, uh, which is an honor. Um, So I started then. So I was only there about seven years, wonderful seven years, started on Valentine's Day, which I always said I knew a job I would always love. I thought it was kind of cool that it would be on starting on Valentine's Day.
3: So um, seamstress, how many of you were there Um, in
4: there and what did you guys all do what did you put together what was your main responsibility well actually if you're talking east and west coast uh, our technically our jobs are called it's a long one aerospace composite tech soft goods soft goods meaning anything to do with fabrics so we had about a team of 40 ladies that worked in california Uh, we used to take measurements for blankets and tile in california as the shuttles were arriving to ksc realized that was a lot of turnaround time. So in 1988, they closed the facilities in California and moved the blankets and the tile-making to Kennedy Space Center. So at our team, we had 18 ladies on our team. They had 20 in California, only 18 of us. In, at ksc did you need some sort of um background
3: with material that can go into space or well, did you no, start out as like oh, seems we were, <laughs> we were, we,
4: i've been sewing since i was seven yeah. so i've been sewing a long time the two key things that we needed to know was uh number one if you could read a basic blueprint mm-hmm. uh the other one was how to draft a pattern and when i say draft a pattern literally meaning taking a piece of paper and drawing one if you had to. Only for shuttle, what we did is we would look at the blueprint, and from there we had a roll of mylar that we would tear off, and then we would hand-draw our pattern by looking at the blueprint, and then quality would stamp and buy it or approve it, uh, and then I would stamp next to it, and then uh, and then it would be approved enough that we could uh, actually build the part itself. What type of material did you usually work with? Oh, A lot of itchy ones, which is why we had a lot of nicknames for our group. Our favorite one is called the Sew Sisters, and we had a special patch that was designed for us. Uh, But our favorite one is kind of naughty. It's called the Itch, Stitch, and Bitch Club. Uh, That was our favorite because the stuff that we worked with, we worked with fiberglass. uh, We worked with glass fabrics in general. We worked with um, quartz, which most of our were ceramic or stone-based. In fact, the majority of our fabric we used was quartz. Um, Nextel, those are basically ceramic-based fabrics, but the blankets that we made on the outside of the shuttle skin, that was a quartz fabric, and even the thread was quartz, the batting was quartz, the backing fabric was fiberglass, and those would be directly glued right onto the surface of the shuttle skin, and surprisingly, uh, we replaced uh, 7,000 white tile with the blankets, and you'll notice they look like they're an inch-by-inch inch grid on top. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do the same fab- uh, temperature that the tiles could do, uh, which is anywhere from 600 to t- 1,300 degrees, only it saved us almost 7,000 pounds. And progression-wise, uh, I tell anybody who's interested in studying science uh, or want to be an engineer, uh, material sciences is where it's at because we have about seven distinctive fabrics on shuttle, and that alone by converting from different material, uh, hard materials, I should say, like tiles. Two fabrics. We saved close to 8,500 pounds just on Atlantis alone, and it costs about mm, roughly $10,000 a pound to send something into space. So the lighter you make your vehicle, the less fuel and the more money you save. But yeah, just by switching to fabrics alone, we save a lot of weight. I,
3: I never knew. When you talk about quartz, I think of a rock with shiny little parts, but that is actually made into
4: a fabric. Can you tell us more about this? No, see, it's, yeah. funny, you should, <laughs> it's funny you should ask, because I think anybody who works for space fabrics for the first time, I'm very inquisitive. I asked a lot of questions. Um, they, they, my engineers explained it to me, is if you've ever watched cotton candy being made and how they take sugar and put it in the center, superheat it up, and then it spins around and shoots out, The actual cotton candy. Well, they tell me it's a process very similar to that. And what they do is, and our thread is done the same way, Um, they take quartz and finely ground it into like a sugar, and then they put it into a machine and melt it. Literally, they melt it to a liquid, and then as they spin it around, it shoots out fiber that they're able to twist and turn into a thread or consequently weave into a fabric. Wow. So
3: things you've made and you have sewn are actually on a shuttle going into space. How does that feel?
4: You know what? I can't even tell you how thrilling it is. Um, My husband's had a very unique career on submarines, and and, and I always wanted something really unique in my life. I'm a mom of three kids, and that's important to me, and I will never downplay that. But there's always something. You want something that you know to be unique for, and it was something I wanted to do since the time I was little. So, yes, it's thrilling to me. Uh, it leaves me a little bit of a legacy. Um, I tell my granddaughters that we sewed with love. The astronauts used to come to our building and hug us when the machines were over with and tell us if you ladies weren't here, we would not have made it home. And They recognized how important we were. But the thing I love telling my granddaughters, because I'm teaching both of them how to sew, is you know what? Grandma has stitches inside the Smithsonian, and how many grandmas can say that? Um, I was just at the
3: advar Center recently checking out the shuttles So if I were to walk around the shuttle or go in it,
4: um, what could we find that you have uh, possibly sewn? So many things, and it surprises some in, in areas you can't even see. The outside blankets, those are on the ohms and down the sidewalls of the shuttle. We actually have a felt called frizzy on the wings and on the top of the payload bay door. That's a Nomex felt with a silicone coating. Uh, we didn't cut that. They, they would cut that across the street at the bay, but we made thermal barriers that line each of the wheel wells, uh, but the thread we use for that is very unique because in the elevon which are the wing flaps inside the uh, leading edge of the wing inside the nose and the thermal barriers because those are super high temperature areas. We had a special thread called AB440. It's a bright neon pink thread uh, phrase like the Dickens. <laughs> Even though it was made for the sewing machine, we hand showed all of our parts for all those hot areas because that thread melts at 3,250 degrees. Wow. Really yeah. a high temp. In fact, in our world, if a fabric or thread is dyed blue, pink, or green, that tells us it's a high temp fabric or thread vice a regular fabric or would be. Um, so um, the blankets on the outside, thermal barriers in the wheel wells, blankets inside the wings, huge blankets inside the nose, because a lot of people think it's the black tile or it's the bottom of the shuttle that gets the hottest. That's absolutely wrong. We have a very unique fabric on shuttle on the leading edge and also on the nose. It's called reinforced carbon carbon. Hard as a rock when you hit it. Um, it goes up to 3,100 degrees in its protection Place the tiles 2300 at the most is what the tile could do so the leading edge of the wing where the wing indents in is the second hottest on re-entry and right underneath her nose there's a special curved panel called the chin panel and the nose is built out of five inches of this fabric it starts off as graphite rayon which is how it's considered a fabric and through a lot of steps at least seven it turns it literally from a piece of regular graphite rayon to literally it's hard as a rock so it's really underneath the nose is the hottest and um, the highest we've ever measured was 2880 there but it seems just inside the nose we hand sew a bowl shaped blanket and we have 19 inches of cavity to fill behind that blanket so we hand sew these little blankets called puzzle blankets and those are also hand sewed they're called that because they fit together like puzzle pieces to fill that whole space inside the nose and that's done with the high temperature thread too uh, the blankets behind the engines That's probably the coolest blanket, bad bad (laughs) one. But we actually had three antique sewing machines upstairs. Their first jobs were to sew an inch thick of leather making saddles. So we actually brought them upstairs into our building. They were small machines, maybe about two feet across. Their first jobs were sewing saddles or an inch thick of leather, and they were Singer 9710s. We electrified all of them, took a section of their arm off and extended them out to be five feet long. And we've kept a NASA tradition by naming all of our sewing machines, and Lurch is the one. He was built in 1914, and he's the machine that we have back that we quilt the blankets. There's actually four blankets on each engine. There's two little ones that are shaped like a keystone. Those are called splice pillow blankets because they splice the two big dome heat shield blankets. Well, the splice pillows only take us about eight hours to do. The dome heat shield blankets are the big ones. They're eight and a half feet across. They're built back there for sound suppression around the engines. Um, those take us at least four and a half days a piece to do, but we actually are standing on alert just for quilting that. And so, horizontally, we have 12 rows, but what radiate out, we have 124 rows of stitching. And so, if you're looking at anything above a, a flat surface, the heat is naturally drawn towards that. So, we have to knot the beginning and end of our stitch line and bury it into the part. Um, and that takes about four hundred well, about two hundred and forty eight times just on one blanket to bury the knot. blanket. And then we hand sew a four inch size it's like a bias tape, it's a ceramic one out of stone, that we hand sew to finish off the inner and outer edge of the blanket. And then when we get done with the blanket, this is the most unique hand sewing on her is we hand sew those blankets on the back of the shuttle with a wire thread called Inconel six twenty-five and the blankets are actually hand sewn onto the back of the shuttle for flight. So that's the most unique hand sewing that. We We did. So, wow. Um, I don't know
3: what to ask next because I have a lot of questions going through my mind because I'm imagining we have 16 women sewing something at once or do you all have your individual projects? You said the engine
4: took quite a while. What we did is um, each orbiter had a different, what we called a traveler, Mm -hmm. what basically was it was a colored folder. So depending on what color of folder it was, we knew what orbiter we were working on. Um, So we had um, the latter part of the program, it was uh, blue, green, and orange. And uh, orange was Endeavor, blue was uh, Discovery, and Atlantis was um, green. Yeah, green. <laughs> we had a few other ones too, but those are the main ones. So we had a rack. So what we did is, what we we just would some of us, of course, you have specialty things that you like to work on. Um, so but we, the, the folder would have we just pull a folder and we would look at our print and see what part we were doing for the day. we weren't assigned parts, we just got to pick what we got to do, and of course if the schedule got tight, you can't pick and choose, you know, everything had to be done so, um, yeah, so that's what we did we got to pick whatever we got to do, but or, you know, rarely assigned, but
3: yeah So you were potentially working on several shuttles at once oh, yeah, we it sounds worked. like we so it we good assembly we line going
4: But one thing I love to do is whenever I'm giving tours of Atlantis, I I had this most, my, my, my coworkers, it was a most annoying habit. But you've got to understand, when you're so excited and, and the odds of you getting there, I asked so many questions that I would even ask the other ladies, what part are you building today and where is it going to go? I literally used to keep a logbook and write down VO70, which means that's a flight hardware part, write down all the part number, whatever it was going to and where it was going to be installed. And wow. I used to think that was so nuts, but but that was my thing. That was my thing that's to do amazing. that. amazing. Yes, that was my thing. <laughs>
3: Um, so you worked on several missions. Did you ever?
4: Do you get to go in the
3: shuttle when you're doing? You're oh, yeah. sewing inside the shuttle too. You're not just in.
4: No, it's uh, sometimes uh, warehouse. Inside. Not a lot inside, but sometimes. Um we would build the parts, but notice I don't say so or make, it's yeah. always in NASA talk, it's your building your apartment. Apartment. So building. so it's building. So we would build our parts over at the, as I worked at the TPSF, which stands for um, Thermal Protection Systems Facility. Tiles are made downstairs, all the sewings are done upstairs. We would build the parts over there. Rarely, if the schedule got behind and they needed us to install, we would be asked to go across the street and install. That didn't happen very often. But um, and most of the time, if they needed thermal barriers and the wheel wells installed, they would ask me to do it because i'm a quilter and i have nice even stitches and so um we'd have three three thermal barriers on each wall so there's 12 on each door those are rated basically for three flights, but it takes two of us about 17 hours to install them in or stitch them in. But each part is four feet long. Each thermal barrier is four feet, and it takes us four days just to sew one. And so we multiply that times 12, and then it's 17 hours to put all 12 in. So it's, it's a lot of time to put that stuff in.
3: It, it's amazing to think of how many
4: individuals are employed to
3: you know, create one shuttle or to make one mission happen. You know, you never think of seamstress for NASA. You know, um, what? Where has your career brought you since now that the um, the shuttles are no longer launching?
4: Oh, gosh. You know, once it gets in your blood, you can't stop. So I'm what they call a docent, which is Latin for teacher. Um, I'm working in the education department down at KSC, um, Kennedy Space Center. Um, And I also work part-time for Delaware North, and I do special tours of Atlantis. And I talk about uh, we have specialty docents that each of us specialize in a certain system on shuttle. So what we do is I represent thermal protection on shuttle. And um, so if there's any thermal questions I get asked, um, but um, they say we're experts. I I don't know if I'd say that. I, I try and know everything I can. But, uh, yeah, that, I, I volunteer as a docent. I also do launch support. I do Nash the socials if we need volunteers to do that. So I've got to meet Bill Nye the Science Guy, Elon Musk. So a lot of people will say, well, you don't get paid now. And I go, well, I have my own business. This is just part-time that I do my volunteer work. But the neatest stuff, we, we get to go on top of the roof of the VAB. There's a lot of neat things that I tell people, you just can't put a price tag on. You know, it's it's, it's priceless and so yeah I don't get paid. I volunteer. I volunteer, <laughs> I volunteer, I volunteer a lot and, and, and I, get to, I get to see and do a lot of things that most people would only dream about.
3: So you mentioned your business you have right now which I got to see an example of
4: earlier. Can you tell me about what you're doing? Well our nickname uh, was called the Sew so Sisters and so I named my business So Sisters Space Creations. I make custom shirts and a bit of everything. I make lanyards, you name it. I, I actually had the chance to purchase three payload bay liners from Columbia, Endeavor, and Discovery. And so what I do is people ask for fabric outright that I can sell to them. Or what I do is, and the guys really like this, especially the guys, I actually take about an inch and a quarter piece by an inch and a quarter and stitch it in the pocket. Uh, on their on their on their pocket so they can have a, a conversation piece so the shirts have been very popular and it's kind of thrilling whenever I'm watching Facebook or, or a NASA social and I go oh I made that <laughs> so and the guys have been very very nice sometimes if we have a big NASA function they know that I'll be watching and they'll deliberately wear the shirts and everybody will ask oh where'd you get that shirt at so it's kind of it's self-exploding. It's, self uh, it's, it's gone Gone very, very well. So
3: where should we get these shirt at? Can you tell us where you are online or well, um, social media or
4: anything? Uh, well, I should be on social media. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just have everybody, if they're interested... Go to my Facebook page and uh, just personal mes- me, uh, message me if they want one. And all I ask for the shirts is a chest and a waist measurement, and, um, and I'm good to go. Perfect. I'm good to go. So she's Jean Wright, just like the Wright
3: brothers, Jean, G- J-E-A-N. Uh, what's your profile picture? There might be a lot of Jean Wrights out there, just so oh, we you know. Oh, you can't
4: miss it. I have the really cool picture that my friend who's a professional photographer, Ken Kramer, in fact, he's right over there. Um, I have a picture, and I'm actually um, – uh, in front of Atlantis, and I've got my arms crossed in front of me with the pose of, yes, indeed, I do own this place. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm I have my picture's right in front of Atlantis, and I'm so, so you can't miss me. You can't miss me. We'll it. know how to find you now. You will. You will. <laughs> Is there anything
3: else you want to talk to and say um, to our listeners that I
4: might have missed? Well, you know, the one thing, that when I do talks around the country – um, it's been fairly recent that we've gone from STEM to STEAM career, and I think because I'm a seamstress, when I, I primarily get invited to huge quilt shows around the country, or universities that maybe have uh, material engineering, and I always tell them as an artist, because um, I, I, I'm, I'm very creative. I, I not only do quilting and sewing for subtle stuff, but... but um, I paint, and I do a a bit of everything. I always tell everybody who always thinks you have to be a math or scientist to be for NASA that I've actually had women come up to me. And and kids, too. I never thought there was a space for me there. But you tell me if I'm creative-minded, I have a chance. As basic or as humble as sewing is, people can actually relate to that, and I think that's my door opening to people. Uh, I stress in all my talks how important it is for art or being creative. It's as I explain to people, if you have an idea, you have to have someone who can visualize that and draw it or even write the plans for that. So it takes a lot of creativity to even do something as technical as a spaceship. So I think as simple as what I did, so it was kind of technical in some ways. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that it is so relatable that people think, you know what, I really do have a chance. And, and really, NASA does need people with all sorts of creativity or talents. It's just not math and science. They're important, but we need creative people too. It's the importance of keeping art in our schools because exactly. a lot of
3: art classes, that's being cut around the country exactly. to save money. And it shows, you know, art is has a home at nasa mm-hmm. that's amazing thank you very thank much for you. talking thank with you. us today again this is victoria newville with the stuck Mike afcast and i was here with jean wright seamstress for nasa this is victoria newville with the stuck Mike afcast and we're currently at the wallops flight facility um with nasa social you can check out all our pictures at hashtag nasa social and check out um my Instagram, social media, as well as
2: stuck Mike Avcasts. I am here with Keelan Hamilton, and he is the Space Station ISS Program Science. And uh, he's with Berrios Tech.
3: And that was a lot of words I just rambled off. So, um, welcome, Keelan, and tell me a little bit about what you do and what that title means.
5: Okay, I'm an International Space Station Program Scientist. And basically, what that means is I work with the people doing the investigations, all the experiments on the space station, I work with them to uh, Help uh, so they can explain their science to, to the general public what they're doing. Basically, I call myself jokingly the nerd whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> I <like> so, that. <laughs> so, so I do it, So I help help to help to break it down, serve, everyone. live. And the products we, we feed all the media products, even things like briefings to like our members of Congress and the president and all the cabinet, whatever. So, we do our. Um, Translation of information makes it uh, throughout the, throughout the whole world. Mm-hmm. I also work get to work with all the international partners. So I work with the European Space Agency, uh, Japan, Canada, and sometimes with, with Russia yeah. to help talk about their experiments and again help to simplify their explain what they're doing.
3: Wow, you grew, terms you get around. <laughs> I do finally. <laughs> so um, let's start with this. Every person wants to be an astronaut when they grew up. Do you still have that dream? Is that how you got into all of this?
5: Yes. It, yes, uh, my first term. I've always been always been, been a science person. Always enjoyed science. My parents were uh, Trekkies, so and yep, when I was little, <laughs> exactly. And you know how that is. And, and little when those little Star Wars came out, so I was all about that. But then I was always a science-oriented person. And then the day came, April 12th, 1981, with the first space shuttle launch. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was in in schools, like, I'm seven years old, going to eight in school. And uh, I could not get my schoolwork done because this was like the coolest thing ever because first time in my life I've actually seen American space flight. And it's like, you know, it's about that time I determined, you know, I'm going, that's what I want to be, I want to be an astronaut, that's what I want to do. So uh, I started out in in trying to do electrical engineering. It didn't work out, so I ended up going into chemistry and... It's been a blast ever since.
3: Okay, oh, So your science background ultimately led you to the ISS. What type of trajectory does someone take to be able to work with NASA, you know, with the International Space Station and all
5: that? It's a long journey. Some some people get, I'd I say, lucky and then they'll, uh, from college, they'll, like, go to the, the co-op program or with NASA itself or through one of the contractors, wherever the center's at, and they'll get in that way. I didn't have that that easy of a, of a path, but in a way, it was good because I learned other things to help me prepare for NASA. Uh, for instance, uh, after didn't go up, I worked, spent some time working at environmental testing companies, chemistry. So, the chemistry of, of the environment. So, I worked with that testing oil and oil, wow. air and water and soil samples mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, to grad school. Tried again to get into my networking. Knew a lot of people that were working co opting at Johnson Space Center. Uh, my Even my main professor, uh, advisor at the time, too, is working with a NASA uh, person on advanced life support system research. Okay. So I was yeah. kind of, yeah, so like, this is, like, this is up my this is what I want to do. Yeah. Ultimately, wasn't able to make it there, but getting you know, more stuff. So, my first job out of graduate school is working in the Human Genome Project. Okay. So Excellent. so I got a crash course into molecular biology wow. and learned about genetic sequencing and all the other stuff. And stuff that I as a chemist, we've known about this a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just being professional and learned a lot about that. But also, in addition, my main job was to make oligonucleotides, uh, uh, small. DNA primers so they could complete the sequencing part. Mm-hmm. So it, my job turned out to, not only really being that, but ended up being a uh, process control engineer because I didn't know how to make everything. At the same time, I had to develop the process to, get, to, get, to go from chemicals to having everything on the matrix to getting it off the matrix and getting it ready to use for all the other scientists there. So,
3: so And that ultimately it, led to, you to
5: here. Ultimately, yeah. yeah. In, in the roundabout story, because again, I Glad a lot of experience mm-hmm. doing all the, all the stuff. So again, stuff that was like interesting, not my cup of tea, but yeah. at the same time, you have to be a professional and do your job. And so finally, once that job played, played out, I was actually hired at Johnson Space Center. And it was my first uh, tour. NASA was working in the. Uh, Thermal systems division, and that's a long way of saying it was the team that uh that tests everything that the astronauts use in space. Okay, um, uh, my job, first job was uh, testing the lithium hydroxide, it was the air scrubber. You've seen Apollo 13, that was the air scrubber, Yes. That, uh, and in fact, actually, even still at that time, it's like mid 2005, uh, return flight shuttle, and some of the people working there were, were people that had worked on Apollo 13. Oh, wow. still, so it's like, so uh, I've got my academic knowing what should happen in this environment, Then I'm working with people that have been doing this for 20, 30 years. I've actually seen what actually happens and stuff that's going on. So it's like, hmm, as much as I knew, it's like, you know, I could still learn a lot from, the, from the, these guys, these techs that have been doing this. So it was a lot of fun. That's good you know. you're
3: aware of that. Um, mm. My love from space comes from my uh, grandfather who actually worked on all the Apollo missions as well. So I know all about that scrub system. How, how did you test everything? Like, what was mm. there a certain... Um, You know, routine you had to follow, certain parameters you had to meet.
5: Yes, actually, yeah, yeah. yes, 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 yes. We had I had a uh, we had a, a flow bench, a gas flow bench, and we would flow through uh, uh, high, p- highly pure carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide uh, that would re- replicate what the uh, what would be in, in the shuttle cabin. And we turn up the airflow to what the what the cabin flow would be in the shuttle, which was uh, like four point seven liters per minute of, of air. So they're woofing air real through mm-hmm. real quick. And we have a little test little test stand. We load in um, a certain amount of lithium hydroxide. I think it's fifteen something like that loading there and then we'd flow through there for about um, like, like 80 minutes or 80, 90 minutes or flow through there and then we'd get a get a, get a graph and we'd uh, test to make sure that uh, it met certain uh, qu- qualities that okay, if it Make the spec, okay, it's good, right? We had to use, use, do, use like five, five different dew points of like from, from 20 degrees Fahrenheit up to like 80 degrees Fahrenheit and test the how it would absorb uh, carbon dioxide in each of those temperatures.
3: I'm going to stop you right there for a second because mm-hmm. dew point, you hit a word. So mm-hmm. um, pilots are listening to our podcast today, and we ah. always look at the temperature dew point spread. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about the dew point in space? I say,
5: yes, the dew point is usually... Um, Inside inside the, sp- the spacecraft, they want to yeah, keep every. They try to keep everything in, like sea level temperature. They're in the shuttle using the same atmospheric conditions, basins we have on, on Earth. Unlike Apollo, where it was just 100% oxygen atmosphere, so we would uh, test at uh, different uh, dew points so that to, to kind of replicate well different temperatures in the, in the shuttle. People might like warm or colder but also in addition to the same lithium hydroxide would also be used in the EMU spacesuits okay. and yeah. so uh, they are working at, at 4.3 PSI and so uh, certain astronauts like to like in their work they'll keep their suit at a certain temp- temperature or whatever, so we have to make sure that it would all, so that the lithium hydroxide would absorb carbon dioxide at the higher temperatures as well as, as lower temperatures, because there would be a, a, diff- a difference. Since the suits are, ra- are rated for EVA for about seven hours, seven, seven and a half hours, you need to make sure that the, you wouldn't reach the uh, 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 saturation points in, uh, in the suit. And if there's lo- uh, low moisture that's around whatever, you're going to break through uh, your lithium hydroxide... Faster, so you'll, you'll start now having CO two build-up, and then you have to terminate your spacewalk and things like that. So we tested the different, the drier and then the wetter, to make sure that in case you have a trouble with your environmental control system, that it would still actually work. You may have to, may have to, have to like uh, trade your lithium hydroxide canisters more often, but making sure that it would fall within those ranges.
3: So what's mm. the um, like the perfect spread that you're looking for up there? Mm. So like a
5: yeah, it's really um, just. Really can't, can't can't remember so so much, but yeah. it was a basically more so it was like it would uh, each canister is like if a canister, uh, what was I want to say about maybe a foot and a half, and about maybe a foot in diameter that would be full of lithium hydroxide, and two of those would be in in the in the. Uh, Air skirmishes at the same time, and basically those just spaces had to be able to handle a crew of seven people for about twelve hours. Okay. So it's there, yeah. So, so so it's a again since we have the air is moving, circulating air pretty quickly. It's like just make sure you don't have have a buildup so much. Mm-hmm. So the cool wrong bit. yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, so today uh, and yesterday in briefing, you were there with me. We got to learn a lot about the experiments that are actually going up. Um, on this uh, resupply mission, and uh, can you tell us a little bit more about all these experiments and um, what how you guys are involved?
5: Sure. Um, there's a lot of experience we saw Step back. My job is to uh, again working working with the uh, investigators to kind of explain in layman's terms what, they, what they're doing. So we so we, we spend a lot of time going uh, nego- negotiating, kind of write we write our get our some we have these summaries that have all this information. We re- we look at the summaries, we edit it so to kind of make it understandable for people. Send it back to the to the investigators. They look it over, uh, make sure that it's accurate information. And so then we'll we'll agree to agree that this is what they want. Then we'll go and post that. So also are saying that is now that we've been we've helped to do uh do that now some of these uh, some of the PIs were in the, in the briefings that were able to go see actually see the stuff. So the things like the cold atom lab where they're going to like uh, make extremely cold temperatures and do science with that is that was the first time I'd ever seen that hardware. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, finally, this is what we've You're we've constantly learning mm-hmm. on the job. Exactly. And it was said, if you're not learning, you're going extinct. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we have to, so, to learn. so yeah, that, so and with the uh, cement mixing experiment, that's, like nice rudimentary getting the basic science down. So that I'm interested in seeing how that mix, how the mixing goes with the solid liquid. So then now mix, they can, they can go and scale up to the next part and try to see what more they can do with that. And even maybe someday do an exposure to vacuum and see what happens and see
3: if that's Can you tell going us a off. little more about the, uh, the cement, Mixing experiment because cement acts mm. differently in space due to the hydration. Correct.
5: It, it can. It's yeah. actually it's one of the reasons we're going to find it out. Yeah. Um, since this experiment will be done in the cabin, so it'll be done under pressurized conditions. So we'll be able to just get see how. Is the like water mixture going, going to what's it is it going to uh, is there anything fundamentally it's gonna change uh, how how it mixes? So this will just be this is like this is the first call just like pathfinder see, okay, so does it mix right? So let's see. So then probably is according to the investigators, the next step would probably be okay to try to do something a little bit more um, like what's done on earth when they're making concrete. So okay, we've got it mixed now. And see like that now they probably do like the stirring see if they can do that and try to uh mold it and see if it'll, it'll cure like that i'm sure i'm not i can't speak for what they're going to do but i estimate they'll probably try to do a curing while they're inside the cabin see if it works like that way and then probably later on they'll have to go and try it in the vacuum space to like see what's going to, what's going to happen with that because we know water will, will vapor vaporize evaporate or so made whatever the case mm-hmm. may be whatever. So we'll take that away from the, mat- from the matrix. So we'll see well how's it going to affect the structure and the hardening things like that. So there's, and be, there's an interesting like continuation yeah. of that. But
3: and the ultimate goal forward. is to see you know how if we were to go to Mars or something how to make concrete in space you know how right. to do it under different um, you know conditions. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be um, equal experiments back down here on Earth. Mm -hmm. comparable and done to the same times and the same amount of mixing as they are up in space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And
5: also interesting, too, what they find out in in microgravity, since it's a perfect like physics type thing to mm-hmm. to do it may also to turn out that they may find better ways in order to make concrete here on Earth that might make it more durable. Perfect. So, perfect. <laughs> it's good.
3: Um, any other notable um, experiments that like you you take mm-hmm. to heart that you really like? Yeah,
5: there's, there's one interesting that you might be interested in too. There's one called uh, sextant navigation, mm-hmm. and so when we start sending the Orion spacecraft to, about to back to interstellar space, whatever, they're going to need uh, have a backup navigation system, and so they're going to Go back and use, uh, take a hunt from the old Apollo days. They're going to use a sextant to do the navigation with.
3: I'm going to interrupt you and let everyone know my grandfather actually designed the space sextant that took the astronauts to the moon during the Apollo missions. And um, we had to do an introduction at our briefing yesterday and we had to say a fun fact. And that was my fun fact. And then three of you guys came over to me later and said, there's one going, there is a sextant going up into space on this mission. So this is one I'm really excited to hear about because, you know, We take things for granted down on Earth. We can use a GPS to get everywhere. But there's no GPS that's going to get us to Mars. Can you uh, tell us a bit about... You know, more about the sextant, I should...
5: Sextant, mm-hmm. yeah, it'll, it'll probably, it's going to work the same way as, as the old pole sextant was. Like, uh, during your, on your course to wherever you're going to, you're going to, the sky is going to look, look a certain certain way. And so in order to navigate your path, you basically, you take a, uh, you measure angles, angles between the stars, stars. and certain stars. Then from that, you can do your do your math and triangulate your, your position and and know, find out which way you're, know which way you're pointed, which way you're traveling, and what you need to do to, to correct your course. So,
3: so and that is going thing. up. So, do you mm-hmm. know when um, when this stuff goes up? Do you know which astronauts going to be working on this? How are they going to use the sextant up there? And, yeah. I think it's going something,
5: it. something that'll be used. Uh, each crew member going to so mm-hmm. there's a there's a good there's a good picture I'll show you later of uh, one of the European astronauts that's uh, uh, using it in, in training. So it's a uh, cool. yeah, it'll be something that each astronaut will, will get a chance to use, and it may end up being one of those like even astronauts have like their favorite experiments. Mm-hmm. So this could be one that they actually work with a lot because I think a lot of them are are um, interested and intrigued like now we're doing what the old Apollo guys did and who knows, maybe some of these guys may be the ones using it and navigating back to the moon or so.
3: That's amazing. Mm. That's just something from so long ago is still so relevant today. Um, what, so what's your favorite part about your job besides talking about space all the time? Is there mm. something that really has stood out mm. to you over
5: your career? Mm. One thing the I love doing, we do a lot of lot of, lot of um, uh, public outreach. So public outreach is, is a lot of fun because, you know, uh, even from the days I'm coming from back in the lab and doing all these things, people ask me what I'm doing. So it's like I have to know know what I'm doing mm-hmm. because if I can't explain it, like explain it like the rest of the space. If we can't explain it to the regular person, no one's going to care. You're going to bore everyone to death, and yeah. we'll never we'll,
1: layman's, you know, terms. layman's terms. <laughs> and no one will ever
5: think. So I like doing that because it helps me to like, oh, I need to remember to understand how to get out of my tech world, talk to everyone, and at the same time, it's like oh, it's, oh, it's good to interact with the, with the public and let them know that. Um, that uh, you know, we're yes, we're just like everybody else. We're passionate about our job and. And also, we're also passionate about what you do and mm-hmm. tell you how what we do in space impacts you work on Earth. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. In fact, there's one little uh, uh, Annika. There's a, a friend. Uh, friend met uh, her parents, and her dad was a construction worker. And was he? He wasn't anti-spaceflight ever so much, but he just really didn't see what the point the point was. Mm-hmm. So I so I asked him, oh, "How what his construction love what he was doing?" So, and I told him about how we were building the International Space Station, how we were using a lot of construction techniques to get to get everything done. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, he's like, wow, really said Yeah. That's some of the, some of that stuff that y'all did and even, they even brought some of the construction traditions while they are doing space and construction. And, uh, one of the interesting ones as I thought was interesting was, uh, the Canadian space agency developed a thing called the space, space vision system. Mm-hmm. And what that was, was in a piece of hardware, so there's, dead zones, there's blind zones where you can't see when you're trying to use the robot arm to start stacking things. So what they would do is they'd put little like, uh, like reflectors or lights on there. And so on, right there. And so, you could, so, what ended up happening is you could tell how it was how oriented by looking at a plot. And the plot would give you a 3D plot of, oh, this is where, the, how this is oriented, where you need to move it. So you could basically, without being able to see where you're trying to put something at, if you can see a wire diagram of where it is around everything, you can use that as a way to get yourself a mind to actually place your modules where they need to go.
3: Love it.
5: So it was like, wow. So And it's, I can imagine probably as something that could be, probably, I'm sure they're working on some construction places, of having that kind of system, so having train operators in a blind area being able to, Actually, put things where they need
3: to go. Was it um, Velcro, I believe, that was developed by NASA? That is something that everyone uses now too. That's so you can one, think one, about mm-hmm. all the technology that mm-hmm. you know, it's not just for up there. It's
5: right. If, if everything, we, everything we do up there is for the benefit of us down here on Earth. So mm-hmm. that's one of the um, cool things.
3: So tomorrow is a rocket launch at four thirty in the morning. <laughs> uh, hopefully it goes off. Um, what uh, how many launches have you been to?
5: Let's see. I've caught, let's see. This will be my
0: this will be
5: my sixth, sixth launch, sixth. sixth launch, and only one only one of them that I go to did I not get get to see launch because I had to had to travel back. So I'm batting five for six so far. So I think that's pretty good. <laughs> and they're
3: all orbital ATK, or were they? know uh, other- I've
5: had uh, one space shuttle launch, okay. uh, STS 93, uh, two SpaceX's, one of which I didn't get to see. And three orbitals, including two. This will be my second Antares. I also got the an orbital that muscle on the Atlas V rocket. So
3: yes, you don't have impressive. fun at all in your job. No fun no. at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with Stuck Mike Abcast. Again, this is Victoria, and I am with Keelan Hamilton, and I appreciate your time, and I look forward to talking about more Space Geek stuff with you on the rest of our trip here. All right,
5: I will be up for that. <laughs>
1: Well, Victoria, that was some cool interviews. I tell you, you could tell, I, I know what you, you said about the noise in the background. It must have been all the excitement, I'm sure, uh, is why there was so much noise in the background. But uh, And it just was, it was really cool to hear that uh, from the people that you interviewed, but also the people in the background.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was, <laughs> every time we went to a new spot, there were people jumping off the bus in excitement or going, what? or, you know, cameras going everywhere, people, you know, hugging each other, you know, just all kinds of excitement throughout the whole event. So a lot of that was going on when I was trying to do the interviews and I didn't want to be like, shut up. So, um, (laughs) we tried to find a quiet corner in like the media area, the best we could. But, um, as you could hear Jean, Jean loved to talk about what she did. And we talked for, um, a good half hour after I interviewed, uh, her and she actually came to tears a few times talking about all her wonderful experiences, um, at the, uh, shuttle, um, in the shuttle missions. And she did share with me too, um, since she's obviously uh, a seamstress for life and really into doing this, she got to, the name is escaping my mind, but she got to visit and uh, view the uh, sewing machine that was used to sew the fabric on the Wright Brothers aircraft. Oh, wow. And she she was brought to tears just because it moved her so much because that's, you know, someone uh, that did that. And then she later was the one creating the fabric for the space shuttle mission. So I thought that was really sweet.
1: That is. That's incredible. You know, one thing I didn't realize is the the in at Wallops is the different missions they have. It's uh, not just space exploration, uh there's there's also many, you know, Department of Defense missions, et cetera, that launch out of there. There it's a very active environment and there's people just like Gene that are incredibly Uh, passionate about what they do and have given their life to these different programs. There's, There's commercial space, there's Department of Defense, there's NASA, there's all sorts of things that are coming together there. And honestly... Uh, I hate to say it. I never heard of the Wallops uh, Center, but I, for now on, will be following it. And I really think that be- getting part of that or becoming part of the National Social Program is going to be really cool. Uh, and I think this has been really cool. And, Virginia, this has been awesome. I mean, you're bringing this to us. I thought that was great that you you went ahead. And uh, <laughs> uh, I guess a little bit of luck. Someone told you about it. And I, yeah. think, I think we're, <laughs> we're going to do some more of these because, uh, as you can tell, there's just – so many passionate people about aviation and also space that are there, and, and I think that's something we really need to promote. I'd love well, to hear. I'm definitely
2: uh, hooked. The orbital ATK uh, ten mission, the resupply mission, uh, is going up again in November. And so, you'll um, be there? with any luck, again, uh, I can record twice, and you'll just have to make sure you're on an airliner. Around the same time.
1: (laughs) Wow, that's going to be... If we could pull that two times in a row, watching it from the air and the ground, that would be really cool. (laughs) So, yeah, this has been... I mean, it's been phenomenal just being part of that. And and actually, just when you watch something like that, there's something inside that, that really changes. You just sit there and say, wow... I mean, it's amazing what humanity can do and what we can do when we come together as a people. And we can actually bring people from the Earth into the sky through to the moon, stay on the moon and go even to Mars and even further and live in space. And I think that's absolutely incredible. And that's what we do. I mean, we all are into aviation and aerospace because of the fact that we love to live those dreams and be part of that mission and part of that goal and part of putting those dreams forth uh, throughout the world and through the country. So hats off to you, Victoria, for actually doing this. And I I can't wait to hear more of those interviews in the future. Uh, This has been awesome bringing this uh, to you and to to the folks here. And uh, Victoria, is there anything else that they should know? Maybe they can go to a website, I think, as far as if they want to show up at one of these events. We're going to put that link. I think it's called nasa.gov and uh, slash social.
2: Uh, yeah, you're pretty close. Um, I think that's it. They'll have a list of the events that are coming up and then ones you can apply to. Um, there's nothing up yet for the November one I mentioned, at least last time I stalked the page. But yeah, it's nasa.gov slash social
1: And I think there's a hashtag, hashtag NASA social. Hashtag
2: NASA social. That's what we used on all of our um, posts and fun stuff like that. So um, check out my Instagram. I put a lot of pictures up there. Um, I was posting throughout the day every day. So um, you might have to scroll down a roll or two. But I've got my video from the launch, um, my behind-the-scenes tour of the control center. Got to actually sit in a chair there and look all cool. Um, and my view of the rocket, how close I could get to see it before, um, it launched. So, uh, there was some really neat stuff that I got to experience. I'm really thankful for the opportunity
1: awesome we'll have a link to that as far as your instagram account and uh, those pictures really cool stuff that you did there in videos and uh, for those of you that that are listening or just in aviation i really uh, you know i'd say hey stretch a little bit try out go to nasa just like uh, victoria did yeah it's a it's a little scary there's a lot of smart people there in the room but you will learn something and it also be incredibly inspirational that's for sure well, folks, this has been terrific, and I've had a lot of fun putting this together. I'd really like to hear your feedback if you want to hear more of these. I know we have doing, doing a lot more aviation shows, but would you like to hear about more launches or anything uh, involved in aerospace? You can send that feedback, uh, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com, and uh, any other suggestions you have for shows, that'd be terrific. And if you want to be on the show or know someone you want to be on the show, just let us know, and we will hook them up with an interview. And uh, this has actually been really a terrific uh, you know thing for me. To be able to see this in flight and uh, a very personal experience, too, obviously, that day. Uh, and it really, it was, it was something that uh, was changed my life, that's for sure. And I think going forward, uh, I think I can get a little more involved in, in rocketry again and also watching the NASA launches. Well, folks, we really appreciate you listening. Safe flying, and we'll talk to you next episode. You've been
0: listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast.